Right. Welcome everyone to the Game Starts Here podcast. I'm your host, Dustin Odom. And this week we're tackling a really interesting topic in the world of education, the COVID slide or otherwise known as learning loss. And with us today, we have an incredibly brilliant and funny person, not to put too much pressure on her, uh, Dr. Eve Miller. Dr. Eve, thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, thank you, Dustin. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> so, um, one of, the, one of the things we've decided ever since we met our good friend, Brad Montague, we had him on the podcast, is uh, we want to kick off every podcast with a similar question. And it's a question that he gave us in his book, Becoming Better Grownups. And it's instead of who are you and what do you do, it's who are you and what do you love about what you do? Mm. Okay, so who am I? And what do I love about what I do? Nope. Well, who I am is a mother. I am a part-time crafter. I'm also the director of research for Franklin Covey Education. Um, and I'm a learner, I'm extremely curious. And why I love doing what I do is because I get to be as curious as possible. I get to help solve problems that I feel like really matter in the world and um, support teachers and educators um, who I feel like are the most important people for helping us get to a place in our world and in our society that we can all um, have equal opportunities and uh, just the type of world that I want for for my kids and for others' kids. Yeah, I mean, uh, Eve, I don't know if I've ever told you this before, but one of the things that as I've secretly admired you in the background for five years of getting to work with you, or maybe more now, is you bring the pinnacle of bringing like your pinnacle of bringing head and heart into a conversation so you geek out on the data and learning that way but you also bring passion and heart and humanity to those numbers and which is one of the reasons why when we started this podcast we had to figure out a way to beg you to get you on to join us so you could talk to our <laughs> listeners as soon as humanly possible so thanks for joining us oh absolutely thank you i i feel like um, I learned early on the power of education. And so to work every day in my small little part of the world to get to do anything with data that I love to um, help move things forward, it is, it's a dream come true every day. So thank you. I appreciate it. Of course. And, and, and you're welcome that I'm here. Like I, you finally talked me into it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it is a pleasure. For those of you who've never met Dr. Eve before, sarcasm is one of her love languages. I'm trying. So she will keep it going. <laughs> and I'll do my humor. best. I'll do my best to keep up with her. Um, okay. All right. So, so to start, I mean, the topic that we're here to discuss today is a very serious one that our uh, country, but also the world is facing right now. And I think recently in a presentation you gave to, I think maybe California educators, uh, you, you deemed the, the term COVID slide. Can you tell us about that term and uh, what's going on right now? Yeah, uh, COVID slide was um, a term we've been reading more lately. It's distinguishing learning loss from other um, points of learning loss, like a summer learning loss or other periods where there've been learning loss with students. COVID learning loss is widespread and it's um, very exacerbated for um, e like different groups who experienced um, gaps in their learning before, like equity gaps in learning or opportunity gaps in learning before um, the COVID learning loss or the COVID learning gap um, is something that a lot of districts and states are 
really looking at and trying to consider, okay, as we get the vaccine out to more teachers and we start to recover, um, how are we going to help students recover the lost learning time? Hmm. So what, what has your research unveiled about uh, what we can expect of this lost learning from a COVID? You know, it's interesting. There seem to be patterns in education where we like to stay in the norm. I guess just like anybody, we like to stay in normal routines. We are very used to certain habits and some of these habits don't serve us very well. So some of what I've been seeing um, in the literature coming out is an attempt to fix the large scale issues in a similar way as we've always been trying to fix things and ways that research has said doesn't always fix things. Um, but then there's also voices that are very important that are speaking to greater equity and speaking to real change in education that are also a powerful movement towards where I believe we need to go and where um, I believe Leader in Me is also out with education. Yeah, I think, so you, you talk about uh, um, some of the differences that we're seeing in learning loss. And one of, the, one of the divides that I think you hit pretty hard and direct in your latest presentation is the differences in r racial differences in learning loss. Do you, can you share with us some of the data that you've, you've studied and looked at? Yeah, it's, um, it's unfortunate, but we know that these gaps in learning existed before the pandemic. And what the pandemic has done is it's really shown how equity is really about opportunities and opportunities that are in the community, that are in the home, that are in the schools, that are <laughs> at all different levels of a student's life. And I think it's easy to blame the student, it's easy to blame the teacher, it's easy to blame all these different levels, but that doesn't get us anywhere. So um, when we look at the gaps, we also like to look at the context, at the different factors that go into it. So it's believed that the learning loss for um, students of color and um, students from low SES or low socioeconomic backgrounds as well, um, will be three to five times that of um, their more affluent white peers. So that alone is just a really staggering, sobering number. Um, and that's from some of the latest numbers from McKinsey and Company. Um, and we see that there's about 10% of students that still don't have internet um, or digital uh, devices that allow them to be part of uh, virtual and remote learning environments. And um, while there's been a great increase in access from spring to fall and even to now, there's still disproportionate opportunities to where these students, um, they're two times more likely, students of color, two times more likely to have had um, no live teaching um, all fall and into, um, this spring semester that has started. So there are just many, many opportunities that lead to this equity gap that leads to the learning differences. I think, uh, and again, this question isn't to scare anybody, but uh, what is the, the data telling us on how long it could take for districts to tackle these issues? 
Right. It's uh, some of the estimates I've seen, um, it's around three to five years. Um, and the increase in spending for each year on top of normal spending is, of course, it's a proportion of a, a district's budget, but it's 1400 at about an average per student per year for each of those years. Um, but then you look at some of the different interventions being um, proposed and they cost way more per student um, because it's really intensive. So in, in times like this, in a side conversation we had recently, we were talking about leadership and the type of leadership that's needed for these critical times in uh, our country, but also across the globe. Um, what, what are some of those characteristics that you've noticed that uh, districts should be focusing on in regards to leadership right now? Uh, I think there's a traditional thought of leadership versus what you believe to be true today. Yeah, I think um, there's a report that uh, Gallup did a couple years ago and they've revised it for uh, COVID that I think has some very aligned ways of thinking to how I've seen the kind of the call to leaders at this time. Um, and so they, they talked to 10,000 employees throughout the whole United States and yeah, we, we imagine a certain role for a leader, you know, like they set a strategic plan and they, they do these different things that we imagine. They manage budgets, things like that. But in reality, the number one thing that came up that people want from their leaders is hope. And um, also in the top four were things like trust and compassion. And as we think about what's going on for educators right now, and the role of district leaders or a school building leader, um, that idea of trust and of hope are huge. So if you think about it, if you think about all the uncertainty that an educator has been going through since last March, and there's a lot going on. There's been a lot of um, sleepless nights and a lot of worked weekends and a lot of just burning down to the bare minimum of any anything else but their their role, being able to build trust back with our teaching force in ways like watching out for them and their wellness and um, doing what's right by them, helping them get the professional learning they need is huge. But hope as well. Hope is all about seeing a future self that's attainable. So helping people see a pathway to reaching that better future. A leader can do that with the right vision that they set for a district or for a school and they help their people get it. That builds trust and it builds hope because as you see it and you help your people that you work with, the people on your team to see that with you, they start to look for their own ways to get there. So you inspire in them that ability to help others um, and those students, they need that hope. They need to feel that their teachers believe they can get there. Otherwise, we're just going to stay in these cycles of the, the lowest performing students are going to stay the lowest performing, but now they're going to be up to a year or more behind where they were. So this is a catalytic leadership that we are looking for here. And that is absolutely possible. Yeah, I think when I when I heard the presentation, I think for me, the cynical side comes to, okay, so I, I absolutely believe that uh, we need a different type of leadership. 
And I'm very attracted to the leadership that you're talking about that provides hope, trust, and compassion. Um, but that's not the easiest thing to do, especially when you think about a leader's like all the things that we have to do. We've got to get access for kids to learn. We've got to get people back in school. What what are some ways? And I think and I don't know if you went into the three lenses to describe it, but I think you tried to tackle some ways of how we can be those type of leaders to provide hope, provide trust, and provide compassion. Can you tell us some of those? Yeah, yeah. So I love thinking about um, non-traditional ways of looking at an old problem. I'd love to consider all the different ways that we've gone about approaching a problem in the past or even a new problem, looking at it through um, our history and seeing within that a new approach or an effective approach that's not as common. So out of some of that thinking around what districts can do, especially as I look at some of the plans that are coming out from states or from uh, different um, education groups that have really great ideas within them, taking elements of those or thinking about, oh no, we're just going to go after this in the same old way. Um, three different lenses uh, came out to me. So I use lenses to say, it's a, a different way of saying like a, a mindset or a paradigm. So what is the way that we're viewing this that maybe if we took a slightly different view, we'd be able to approach this problem with some traditional strengths, but also with an innovative advantage. So the first is around achievement. So as you say, yes, like we can't give up our day job to go be these inspirational leaders. We need to be in the whirlwind and be able to help our, our team see what is most important within that whirlwind, so to speak. Um, it's, it's the ability to inspire while in the day job. So the academic lens, there's elements there um, that are really important. If you want, I can go through each of the lenses one at a time or just kind of share the overview of the three. Yeah, no, I, we can come back to the overview. I think for me, uh, I'm fascinated with each one. And so when you talk about the lens of achievement, I'm, you know, I, I have some ideas of what I think it could be, but I'd really like you to crystallize that for us. Yeah, so we know what works in instruction and we know what works in um, education. We, we have a lot of research to show what works. What gets in the way is what we should sometimes pay attention to. So when we talk about achievement, um, that new lens is around being aware of those barriers. So for example, for, for a district, um, for that district leader's perspective, what gets in the way for your schools and for your uh, teachers is a lack of focus on the most, as we call it, wildly important thing. So often they're receiving so many mandates, they're receiving uh, different pieces of curriculum or they're receiving new curriculums, new tests, new ideas that it's hard to make sense of what the priority is. And that for a teacher is really difficult because we know that teachers, the effectiveness of a teacher is all around teacher efficacy, their ability to feel successful in their role as a teacher. So here we are in a pandemic where everything's stacked against a teacher to feel like they're being really efficacious. The best thing leaders can do right now is to give 
a very clear focus on what that most important thing is, to set goals around it at the district level, and then to provide diffuse leadership opportunities. So you do not need to be that top-down leader controlling and running everything. Empower the principals who can empower the teachers. You cannot empower if you are not empowered. So a teacher who needs to get in there and help their, their students feel empowered, they have to feel that from their principal who has to feel it from the district leaders. So, so by setting that clear focus, that's the first step to doing that so that it, it gets rid of when there are competing priorities, when there's competing time challenges, which there always are, a teacher can choose that one thing to go after, not the six. Yeah, I think I was looking around trying to be not sarcastic with you, Eve, but uh, <laughs> I was trying to find like the biggest book I could possibly find. And this is this doesn't even do it justice. But I remember, and and this is to no detriment of anybody else, because a lot of really smart people worked on this plan and we were really inclusive of our community. But at one of the districts I worked in, we had uh, a turnaround plan that was this thick, I mean, as big as any book I've ever seen that had 1000 points of light and key strategies. And so uh, how, how would you recommend if I were the, talking to me, you know, 15 years ago, what, what's the advice that you would give me to go back and help narrow that down to the one thing or the three things, whatever you're talking about here for your advice of achievement? Sure. Well, the, all of this that I'm speaking to this wildly important, it's, um, it's all wrapped around a training that we offer through Franklin Covey called the four disciplines of execution. And I bring that up because I think that word discipline is really important. I think, I think about it from, um, in terms of writing, um, that idea that it's easier to write a seven page paper than it is to write, you know, like, you know, seven words, like it'll take a lot more time to figure out like what that short sentence should be than what a long paragraph should be, you know, that I, idea. Getting down to that focus requires a lot of discipline and staying on that focus requires a lot of discipline and a lot of clarity on what the leaders believe the vision is. So I think this is an opportunity while everything's thrown up in the air, like education as we know it needs a chance to resettle, to get really clear on what that most important thing is. And I believe a lot of people in, in what I'm reading, what I'm seeing would say it's something around the learning gap or around learning loss. Okay, if that is the most wildly important thing, what needs to be done with the goals that you help set in the district or within your school to allow and empower those people who will achieve those goals for the district, who will actually help the students to get to that learning, have what they need and give them the space to focus. So the discipline is removing everything else from the plate so that they can have that focus and knowing what it takes, what needs to be on that plate that is essential to reach that goal. So it is, it is, the discipline of the right things and not everything. So it's it's easy to put a lot of things into a plan. It's much harder to remove and to get to the things that are most effective. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I definitely agree with that. Cause again, I think about my thousand points of light, again, all really important things with tons of community feedback, but to limit those and narrow them down to one to three would be really tough. I'm sure we could do it. But again, to your point, we have to really be honest with ourselves and ask ourselves, what is the one thing or one to three things that if we don't do, everything else will fall apart. And so we have to go after right. it. I guess my question for you is, you know, we're, we're talking to leaders here uh, in the district space. What What is the role of students in uh, what you're talking about in four disciplines of execution? Right. Well, the it what's really powerful about the other disciplines is they're really about at that education level. They're really about empowering um, the systems to work <laughs> and the people within those systems to have the autonomy to be able to carry out the goals. So down at the student level, we know that the learner learns and we need to allow them what we know about the best practices around what allows a student to learn to really come out. And I think when we look at histories, when we get to these moments where we get really concerned, we start to control. We start to control everything in a learning environment. And we wanna make the standards everything. And we wanna be very rigid about what happens within a classroom. And we lose sight of the power of a person who can take hold of their own learning. So the disciplines allow for a student to own their learning through that goal setting process. So the goal that is set at that district level it makes it to each school and that school has the ability to bring it to life for based on the strengths and the abilities of the staff within that school. So they get to carry it out in a way that makes them feel like they have autonomy in it, that they can bring their strengths to the table and they can have their own version of it. And then it goes from there to the teacher into the classroom. And then they work with those instructional strategies to help every student accelerate their learning based on the, the place, the diagnosis of where that student is at and how to help them accelerate their learning. But they bring the student into it just as every level of that goal reaches down and helps to empower that student has the opportunity to see within what they can do and set goals around their learning and then have space to go achieve those goals. And so it cascades down and it cascades back up. Mm. Is that, what's the opposite of cascade? Yeah, I don't know. I was thinking the same thing because I was going yeah. down cascade. It's embarrassing. Yeah, right? the, the tornado <laughs> of some sort. I don't know. Twister. It's a twister. <laughs> I don't know. What, no, but to your point, though, it, to, to simplify or to, to summarize, not simplify by any means, but to summarize uh, the lens of achievement it sounds like we've got to take all of our goals and have a very disciplined approach to narrowing them down to one maybe three at the max but i think you'd probably prefer one yep. if we can do it then to your point cascade that all the way down to each level where there's ownership at every level but also it sounds like freedom to figure out how to solve the problem for each level does that sound correct yeah yeah and it's i mean it's a it's a really powerful process that is its own training. So yes, distilling it down to a few, um, just a, a quick answer, just doesn't do it justice. Um, well, I mean, you did, you did pretty good. You did pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> no, I agree. I, I mean, when I was 
uh, doing school turnaround work across the country, I was actually utilizing the four dis disciplines of execution to help turn around the high schools and the districts we were working with. And so I absolutely believe in the power and I was just trying to articulate how you were so eloquently phrasing it. So that's the first <laughs> lens uh, of achievement. Tell us about the second lens. Well, okay. So the second lens that we, that we're seeing um, is really about equity. So we were talking earlier about um, the gaps that we're seeing. And these gaps are pervasive in education and um, we need to have an honest dialogue about where they come into the learning environment and how to remove them. And so a lot of what we talk about is around um, a teacher expectations, like the way that our systems are set up we create these systems of formal, um, formal and informal processes that tell us something about a student that then carries on like a baggage with them year after year. And so we start to see some of the students as low performing, more dependent learners. And we have um, the more independent, the better students. And it's almost like a continuum of learners. And so, the teachers, I mean, this is 50 years of study based on what they believe about a student before they even meet that student, just by looking at records or what they know about them um, from other sources, they start to determine the abilities and um, the access to opportunities that that student will re receive within their classroom. And so there's, you know, troubling data around that, but then there's also data around how paying attention to our behaviors allows us to become aware of those expectations that we have about students. Because the truth of it is, a student will rise to the opportunities they are provided and to the expectations of that important teacher in their life. And we see this time and time again, when the teacher can see that, that student, that child, through a more empowering lens that changes the dynamic of learning for those two and the opportunities that student receives. And it raises the rigor for the student and it raises their academic abilities by starting with the relationship based on those expectations. So it's, it all works around in a cycle, but it has to, to be able to stop it or start it you have to look at those behaviors and question why some students are treated one way versus another. It's so easy to fall into a deficit mindset about students, especially when they pose a threat to like our effectiveness as teachers. Like, oh, it's just that student. It's just their ability to learn. We are in the classroom to help them learn. So to see every student as a learner who has the capacity it shifts things, it shifts everything. And all learners um, in the classroom really benefit from that shift. So um, I, I don't wanna be disparaging of the individual I was talking to a few days ago, but uh, there's a person in a high school that I was talking to and that person said, well, we really need something for the freshmen to help them grow because by the time they're juniors or seniors, we've kind of lost them. And I, I was kind of pulled back. So I'm thinking like when I'm 60, 70, 80 years old, I hope I'm still growing and still learning. How on earth can we have a paradigm about kids 
that, you know, well, once they're about 16, 17, 18, they're pretty much done setting their ways. I'm like, you know, it blew me away. And so it, it showed me just quickly that that the mindset you're talking about of putting kids in a box uh, is obviously very much out there. So if I'm a district leader or a school leader, what are your recommendations for how I can start breaking that down and making sure that my teachers are truly seeing the genius in every child that they have? Yeah, no, it's, it's pervasive, right? Um, I believe the most powerful educational interventions start from the inside out. I truly do. And I believe it's a difficult process to look at what we might be bringing to a situation that might be leading to these outcomes. But as a district leader, the capacity of like that potential in impacting, creating ripple effects by doing that work, it is the place to start. So what do I mean by that? It is very common in education to talk a lot about growth mindset, right? Like we hear people talking about students and growth mindset, you know, they've got this fixed mindset about their learning ability. And it's become such a buzzed term that we forget that how students learn their growth mindset or their fixed mindset. It's through the messages they receive from the adults in their life. And the adults of their life learn it often in a professional sense from the leaders in their organization. So some powerful, um, so uh, Carol Dweck, the lead author of a lot of the growth mindset research, um, she did a national study with thousands and thousands of kids at this point. And they, they got down to a core um, like set of uh, learnings of like, okay, this is what we're going to do. And we know that this carries out a growth mindset. So using that same um, like instructional strategy from school to school, all over in all sorts of low SES, high SES, um, across all different races um, and different, um, everything you could imagine, <laughs> um, they found that it was effective. What they, to carry out with all these different students, but they found the factor that had far more of an impact on whether that growth mindset continued on and had a real impact on learning was school's culture. Were the teachers communicating to the students about a growth mindset? Were, the, were peer to peers saying to each other growth mindset ideas and like, did that culture inspire growth or a fixed mindset? So in a similar way, a district leader has the power to look at the ways they're talking about students and start there. And what are you conveying in your messages to your, um, to people at the district level, at the school level, by the goals that you set, by the opportunities that you provide to learners and just the way that you talk about the student's potential, that will have a dramatic influence. And from there, those building leaders, what do you do to help those building leaders see each and every student or ensure that each and every student is being seen through a growth mindset? Um, and building that power and potential and looking at other paradigms like that um, so that we stop seeing students through a deficit of what they don't have, what, how they show up. These students show up with great power, great curiosity, 
great innovation. And it's adults often that tell them they can't do that. And over time they believe it because we play such a powerful role in their life and in how they see the world. That's powerful, Eve. Thank you so much. Um, so one of the, the, the last lens is the one that I'm excited to spend a lot of time with you on. So it sounds like the first lens is lens of achievement. Second lens is the lens of equity. And the third lens is the? Uh, the third lens is the lens of wellness. Yeah. Yep. That is, I think, a key factor that we, <laughs> we forget about in education, especially for educators. Um, it's, it's grown in prominence for students as the mental health crisis in uh, the U.S. and throughout the world has been growing. We've been um, paying a lot more attention to this idea of whether it's talking about the whole child um, or talking about a lot of social emotional learning programs were originally starting to come into schools because of um, different interventions around wellness. Um, so it's been growing and the SEL, so social emotional learning and all the wellness that it brings, it's a wonderful movement to see, but you know the first thing <laughs> that starts to get ignored um, when we get serious about academics is wellness and whole child and all of that. And I, and we, so take that. And so we've been growing in our awareness of that for students, but then there's the educator side of it. And educators are often seen as um, <laughs> these helpers, like the, the people who become educators they are a special group. I am certain of it. Like there is a heart. I mean, I know that there are many individual differences in educators, certainly, but there is a heart for teaching. And that heart is often giving. And that heart often gives and doesn't create the right balance for themselves. <laughs> and um, no, and it's unfortunate that um the leaders of education who probably have a similar heart don't prioritize it. So we've been seeing how um, prior to COVID that really educator stress was uh, in a national study done, educator stress was tied with the emergency room nurses for being the most stressful job. Um, and so there's, teachers don't need us to prove this. Like they know that education can be a very stressful job and they put a lot of pressure on themselves, but also people put a lot of pressure on them. And so we, we have seen since the pandemic and all the uncertainty, all that has come, all the weight of switching methodologies of, and modalities of teaching overnight, all the stress that's coming. And educators worry about their kids. They worry about what's happening in the homes. They worry about just how the students are dealing with all the change as well. Um, and so it's been a lot and their personal life, right? So all of this, and we used to think that stress would just kind of flow in and out as, as you know, just like it would pass through like a drain. But we know now that stress can start to accumulate if we don't have the right wellness practices and that accumulation, especially in times like a pandemic can build and it becomes a chronic stress um, that's really unhealthy for educators and can lead to all sorts of um, health issues. And um, it can be a leading factor in um, burnout. And we're seeing 
early retirement and rates of burnout dramatically increasing from already increasing um, rates of burnout. So we're losing really good teachers and principals and even district leaders because of um, poor systems and awareness and acknowledgement that wellness is the number one thing we must take on if we want to take on achievement. I, I could not agree more. And I think, you know, early in my teaching career, you know, started some 20 years ago, um, I was teaching in inner city St. Louis and had the most amazing students who, you know, taught me hopefully as much as I taught them. And one of the things that always struck me is that, you know, there was learning loss and achievement gap then there's always been, unfortunately, which we have to fix on top of COVID slide. Um, but one of the things that always struck me as weird is our leaders would often talk about do whatever it takes for kids. It's like, you know, as a mentality of like sacrifice at all costs for kids, which sounds awesome. However, you know, it's kind of like Southwest Airlines. Southwest Airlines doesn't believe the customer is always right. They take care of their employees first and foremost and trust that that will transfer to their customers. And I think it does. And I'm not trying to make a, a sell on Southwest Airlines. However, that culture is something that's always stuck out to me is why don't we have that in education where we set up districts to take care of our greatest resource, which is our teachers, and allow them to fill, have their cup filled so they can just pour it all out and overflow to the students. Is that kind of what we're talking about here when it comes to wellness? Right. right. Well, no, I mean, what you said there about Southwest Airlines, it, it made me think of an article that I'd just been reading by Learning Policy Institute. And they were talking about, they looked at outlier districts and they looked at um, what was the difference? What were the factors in these districts that were actually able to close um, that learning gap? They were able to help those students who are often on the losing end. Um, and one of the key factors involved is there was consistency in the teaching force. And you know, so they were able to keep the consistency of hey, this is what we do as a district and consistency, the students would see those teachers and those teachers would be in a good place. Um, it was the district leaders prioritizing the wellness of their educators, of their staff members and um, putting in place systems and policies that supported the wellness of of them. And so it made them feel valued. And so they didn't want to leave that district. They wanted to stay there. So if they were going to move, if they were needing to do things that would usually allow them an opportunity to get out of that district or out of that school, they would find ways to drive back, to come back to these places because they valued how much value was put in them as an educator. And we see this time and time again, right? So Wellness is a real big factor there, um, of course. And there's other studies that show that wellness and uh, learning are wellness of a teacher and the learning of their students is directly related. Um, even from studies about a teacher's stress is predictive of the student stress in the classroom by looking at cortisol, the stress hormone, by measuring it in a teacher and then measuring it in their students, there's a direct correlation of going up with the teacher or going down if a teacher has lower stress. And so that creates an environment because when we're in stress, we can't learn as well. And so just even for practical reasons, 
districts should care about this, but also for keeping good teachers, um, it's all important to learning. Um, so if a teacher's in a good place, they're able to also respond to the difficulties that will be coming into the classrooms as students return and have not had as many social interactions. And they might have been through some traumatic experiences. They might have just been experiencing a lot of stress if it doesn't amount to trauma that they're going to be bringing into the classroom. We need our teachers to be well, to be able to manage their own emotions so they can help students in co-regulating theirs so that they can learn to manage them over time. I completely agree. I think one of the things that hit me like a ton of bricks uh, from your latest presentation was, uh, you know, I've seen some of my favorite principals do, when they think about wellness, they make sure they buy a cup of coffee for their, they surprise their, their staff with cups of coffee. Or uh, I saw one person in Iowa one time would call that teacher's family and set up a day, surprise day off. And the teacher came in and then the day would be set up to go have fun for them. And they would, the, the, the principal would come in and take over that day. Those are all really awesome, inspiring things. However, I think your presentation check my perception of what creating a wellness culture looks like. So can you can take a little bit further than what I define it as, as a cup of coffee or a day off? What, what are the components of creating a real strong wellness culture? Yeah, when, so this idea of uh, teacher wellness, it's a, it's a passion issue <laughs> to me. Um, and so I've been curious about it for a few years, just saying, what are, what are the messages that teachers are receiving? How do we get this right, right? Um, and as I was looking at the messages that teachers receive, what we see, uh, if you go to Pinterest right now and you type in, say, teacher self-care, right? Because that's, we use wellness because I think, I like that word. I think it's a more comprehensive word that gets at a lot of different aspects. If you go type in teacher self-care, which is how it's usually talked about, you will see these cup of coffees. You will see have a day at the spa and different strategies like that. There's nothing wrong with these strategies. These are not necessarily wellness strategies, however. Wellness strategies are things that lead to lasting uh, wellness. They lead, they allow someone to have greater balance in their life and to build their resilience. And to me, um, my background is in cognitive neuroscience. And so as I was reading through real wellness strategies and comparing them to self-care, what I saw the key difference was, was that a wellness strategy, it, it's very brain-based. It thinks about the way that a brain is balanced and how we actually build resilience versus something that just sounds nice and looks good on a vision board or something. I'm not sure, like it's, it doesn't, if anything, it could actually lead an educator to feel a sense of shame because if they go and get that cup of coffee or they get that extra hour to go and have lunch and they still don't feel good, well, what's wrong with them that they can't just pull it together? How could they when it's not actually restoring their brain from all the stress that they are experiencing or building it. So the um, the presentation that you were uh, that you're referring to, um, what I shared there were 
this idea of the three executives. So we have three major systems in our brain that are tied to wellness. And these systems, um, they, they all play important roles, but they all need to be in balance. So what often happens is when we're in a lot of chronic stress, like is perfectly expected and um, understandable during times of a pandemic and all the shifts in education that have been occurring, what happens is a part of our brain that's kind of like the survival system, right? That's got the amygdala involved. That's what we hear about is like the fight or flight type of um, complex. That system within our brain, it is very, it's one of the first brain systems to develop in humans, like in the, in the human brain. And so it's really powerful. So it has the veto power. So if we are in stress, it is shutting down other parts of our brain so that it can focus on whatever that feeling of threat is in our environment. That feeling of threat can be, oh no, I'm gonna screw up in my online lesson. Oh no, I failed again, I made a mistake, I'm gonna get fired. Everyone, all those parents who heard me in that Zoom class, I know they were there, they heard me, they think I'm a terrible. Whatever that threat is to our competence, to our livelihood, oh no, I'm back here in class and I don't feel safe being here in class because, well, I don't have a vaccine yet. Whatever those different threats, actual threats can feel, whatever they are, um, they add up over time um, and they can really start to wear us down in our physical sense, in our emotional sense. But then there's the two other systems. And so understanding wellness, it's really bringing back online these two other systems. So the first system is the, the executive system known as like the regulator system. And that's something that educators know well, that's our executive functioning system. So the things like reasoning, decision-making, um, that area where we're really in our learning. The other system is a relatively new area of research and it is like, I'm obsessed with this system because a recent study that came out actually just last October it found that the difference between low resilience people based on how they were measuring it in the research and high resilience people in times of stress was this area of the brain, like activation in this area. So it says something for a neuroscientist to know, hey, when a person is needing to pull on what we're calling resilience, where does their brain go? And it goes to the system. But here's what is really interesting about this brain area, Dustin, is that it is tied to things like um, when a person self-reflects and thinks about like their future self, when they think about where they're going and that place feels achievable for them, when a person thinks about who they are in the world, like in a, in a positive way, their sense of purpose in the world, um, things like that, when they think about um, their close relationships and like the power of those relationships, that area, that resilience area or the resilient system as we talk about it, um, that is activated. So, um, so here we have the system that is the, that executive function, that inner self, um, I mean the regulator system. And then we have this resilient system. What happens when we're in the stress survival system is those actually start to become weaker because 
with brain science, what we know is the pathways that we walk the most, like imagine really, really thick grass, that path that you walk the most, that is going to be the path that's easiest to take. And so in our brains over time, especially like with chronic stress, we go to the threat. Everything starts to feel like a threat. So what we need to do is we need to build the other two systems back up. So wellness is all about ways that we can build those systems back up. So we first need to calm down our stress system. And that can be done through things, um, through a lot of different practices. And we can talk about that. But it's also about um, simple things like doing things that allow us to build that sense of purpose in our life or get in touch with that idea of our real selves. So when you think about a real self, does something come to mind for you? When like, a, yeah, yeah, like your authentic self. Like, oh, absolutely. I mean, I wrote a mission statement uh, from this book I read called Purpose Driven Life back in college. And anytime I feel, I mean, when you're talking about the the stress and the, the triggers, and I've been in those states where everything tips it off, I know I am not centered and to your point, my true self. But when I am, those things don't seem to bother me as much. Right. Yep. Absolutely. And that is, I mean, and there's now brain science to back that like this idea of our true self, it is really something it's again, also when people, when people are asked, they're put into a, you know, a brain imaging scanner and they're asked to think about their true or authentic self, that resilience part of their brain builds up. And so a way to um, really build that area is like what you talked about, like work, work on or live by or look at, even like on a daily basis, have these little moments of checking in with that centering part of yourself. It seems cheesy, I get it, but there is real brain science that backs up like these positive affirmations about where you see your life going and your purpose within it. Um, journaling comes up time and time again, but it's not just any journaling because you could sit down and journal and be like, I'm so crummy today. I did this crummy thing. I did that. Or like you could complain about others and really Have you read my journal from a couple of years ago. Look, I found it. I didn't know it was yours. Okay. <laughs> uh, no, but like all kidding aside, like I, I, you know, went through a journaling phase and I've gotten back into it <laughs> to your point. I was journaling, so I was told to journal, and there were not really positive thoughts in that journal. So tell me, what did I do wrong? Right, right. Well, and I mean, it is okay. Like, no emotion is bad. An emotion is just a message that we should listen to. And if a journal allows you to guide yourself through that message, guide yourself through it, but get through it, right? Like, allow yourself that space. And I mean, when I was reading your journal, I saw you were really processing some stuff, you know? but it's, it's like, it, that is fine. But like when it becomes, that is the only thing you're doing in a journal, that's not okay. Because it allows you to look back over time and see, hey, I process this differently now. I bring in, you know, my strengths, my, my self-awareness around how um, I can better take this on. So it should be helping you grow. Um, another powerful lesson that actually comes out of the hope research is if we're journaling or writing mission statements or even goals for ourselves that are more like in 
<laughs> fantasy land or that are really, or you're kind of on the other end of the continuum where you're like, I'm not going to actually be able to achieve this or I can't do this. They're actually really discouraging. So of course the person down here on the end that's like, I can't do it. They're probably not even setting a goal, right? But the people who are at that more of that like fantasy, like this is what I'm going to do off an imaginary land, it can feel really good and they can get a really great boost from it at first. But then over time, um, even, you know, a couple minutes later, it occurs to them the reality of it. And so that's why setting a goal, but thinking about also the barriers that might, you know, come up as you're going after it, it is far more powerful and it's actually really motivating. So the next time you think about where you'd like to be a year from now, write it down, but think about also what you need to do to get there. Things that might come up in ways that you, with the strengths that you're building, can move those barriers. That's powerful. And it's really powerful for students as well as they're thinking about different challenges that are coming up that get in the way of their goals. There's some really interesting research there. Mm. I I think now people understand why I could talk to you all day. So I, I would say uh, to, to narrow down again, the things that we need to do before I, I have a one, about maybe two more questions to, to dive yeah. into, but uh, we calm down or calm our brains. Is that right? And then we focus on growing. And then I think there's another step you talked about in there, or is it just calm? Yeah, the balance, the balance is really, balance. yeah. Yep. So we didn't even get into the calming strategy, but yes, it's, you know, helping to calm that that actual stress response. So we don't always go to stress, meditation, um, spiritual practices for some people, um, things like that, that um, body awareness. There's so many things out there that help us to calm, just even naming emotions. <laughs> so there's, yes, there's a whole literature on that that's really fascinating. But yes, then building those other systems that the veto power stress system has just made weaker. Yep and balancing the three of those because they're all important in wellness. Getting away from that self-care as the only strategy. Let's like get real serious about it. Well, to your point, I find that, you know, spiritual practice for me helped me, but also a friend of mine really encouraged me to, to try yoga, which is way outside my comfort zone of like how I enjoy working out. Yeah. And there's a yoga practice within that uh, called restorative yoga, which is not really a lot of movement. It's some like good long stretching. And I have noticed if I just do that 10 minutes at the end of every day, um, it, it, it does, again, it stretches me out because I'm very stiff, but also I've really noticed a presence of mind just evolve over time. And so that's interesting that you say like that's part of trying to calm our brain down. So then that we can focus and figure out how to grow, right? And have balance. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm so happy to hear that. Yes. That's fascinating. There's so really powerful research there. Yep. My, my last question for you, and I'm asking this because I was actually texted by a few different folks that also heard your presentation that said, uh, can you please have Dr. Eve talk about the four dimensions of renewal? Uh, because that was really inspiring to learn about. So do you have a moment to kind of break that down for us? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, so within, when we're talking about the different ways to grow um, the resilience system and to grow the kind of executive function regulator system, 
it helps me to have a, a framework to think about, okay, these are ways that I can approach this growth. Um, and, and in some ways, ways that I can kind of, you know, make sure that I'm getting elements of each. So there are four different pieces here. So there is um, self-awareness, there's conscience, there's imagination, and there's independent will. So these are, um, Kind of, these are terms that could mean a lot of different things based on um, the context. So self-awareness in this context, um, it is partly tied to the calming. Um, so self-awareness around body and um, like our mind, our thoughts is the first step to wellness. Um, we have to be aware of what we're feeling and be able to name it. So one of the first ways that um, a child learns self-regulation, for example, is learning the words of emotion. Because um, as researchers like Mark Brackett say, like you can't, uh, you can't tame it until you can name it. So that's part of the self-awareness. But then self-awareness also extends into um, ideas like starting to learn the, thing, like the things that are your strengths, starting to understand your purpose and growing those ideas of purpose and and things that you might not be so good at that's okay too like things that you're not so good at that you want to pursue and things that you're like i'm okay well maybe with these tiny little hands i won't ever be a concert pianist for for example you know just you know uh, hypothetically speaking about that have you uh, <laughs> whatever um conscience and imagination um, these go really, um, really well together. So this idea, um, if um, your listeners have uh, read The Seven Habits, it's this idea of uh, the mental creation before the physical creation is a way of thinking about it. So conscience, you know, that could be a lot of different ways it can be interpreted, but and the way that I think about it, it is that deep sense of authentic self. And in the research literature, when they talk about conscience, that's often where it ties into the research literature is around having experiences where you are feeling like your real self. So that could be a hobby that you love. It could be around people that you love. It could be um, watching a film that you love, reading things that you love, but like things that make you feel that sense of like, I am my best self when I'm doing this, being out in nature. What that does, it's, it helps to build your sense of purpose. It helps to build your sense of who you are and the power behind that. So it might feel like a selfish thing to say, you know what, instead of grading papers again tonight, I'm gonna to take this one night, I'm gonna do something that I just love. It will make you a better person. <laughs> it will help you do better. The next day by doing that it helped restore you in powerful ways um and it yes good <laughs> i think you helped me build my case for next time i when it gets warmer here it's snowing here in st louis but uh the next time it is not snowing and i can go outside and play golf i think you just gave me a really eloquent speech to <laughs> share with my amazing bride of i'm going to come back refreshed re-energized and what? i think she's going to say we have three boys, uh, take them all with you or you're not going, which is a great answer, honestly. Sorry, to, to, I digress. No, no. It's so true, right? <laughs> balance, right? Balance. <laughs> um, 
I mean, and it also ties to some of the other things that we were talking about, this idea of both like the conscience and the imagination. So um, some of those strategies of going golfing because you're getting in touch with your true self, um, <laughs> you know. I'm um, hyper competitive, Eve. I need some sort of outlet and I do like being outside. So it kind of, and I'm not very good. So it fits all the best of both worlds. I got to keep growing. Right, right. Keep you humble <laughs> and competitive. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, it's also tied to as we build that sense of self and like what we really enjoy and spending more time just trying out new things too, new hobbies we might enjoy, um, being around uh, new networks of people, um, things like that. Uh, we build that deeper sense of self and it ties into this idea of like the vision statements and things like that, where we, we can think about that future self more clearly. So we create um, a clear and clear idea of what we want our lives to be and how we see our purpose in life. So we have our own kind of North star, whatever that is like for us individually, it is more clear for us. And so those day-to-day -day decisions are easier to make that help us stay in balance because we have a very clear self um, view and we can we're able to prioritize and schedule our times in a way that it, it's not as difficult anymore because we know the power that brings us and the power we give to others and to our purpose by having that clarity and having that energy within us and through that balance. And so then the, the final one um, is independent will. And really this ties in um, more purely that executive function system. I've left that out a lot because it really is the executor of a lot of this. So we can set a goal through our imagination and our conscience, um, but really to bring it about, to bring it to life, we need that other system that allows us to achieve those goals, to help us schedule and plan and prioritize um, and to keep that in check um, and allow that system to be strong because that is also the system that is um, powerful in modulating emotions and to help downplay and downregulate the veto power of our stress response. So these all work in great balance together um, by building those four uh, gifts. And so that is just kind of the model that I use for thinking about, am I following these four different ways of thinking it through and building that wellness, those wellness factors for myself? Mm. Well, I, I could spend all day, cause like you, I, out of all the things within education, uh, the problems to tackle, wellness and culture are my favorite areas to talk about. So I could get lost there with you. I guess one question I have, and this is hopefully putting you on the spot awkwardly, uh, as, as only I can do for you, uh, would be, so I was also, someone reached out to me telling me that in this presentation that I'm so obsessed with right now, that a superintendent basically asked for it on the spot of, oh my gosh, can I see this? Can I share this with my cabinet? What can I do? Is there anywhere you can decide to share that? Uh, if it's internally or share what you can somewhere publicly? Uh, because I, I find that, again, your, your, thought, your thoughts here are really enlightening, but also they're enabling in terms of giving me direction as a leader to, to tackling these complex problems. Oh, thanks. Uh, yeah, I thank you. Uh, I would I would love to share it if it is helpful for people. Um, they can 
we have a recording of that event and it's on um, the leader in me Niner. and um that is uh i'm sure someone can drop that into a link or that can be provided in the show notes that's the thing that i hear on podcasts is that a thing uh, that we show can notes do? yeah okay. let's do that <laughs> show notes sounds great all right lauren i hope you hear that team lauren wallace we're gonna do show notes now this sounds great uh lauren uh, says leaderme.org slash events of course it's of org. Course. i know <laughs> i know you and i both are like yeah, Niner. I think it's on the thing somewhere. And so it's not dot com, it's dot org. Good job. Slash oh, events. Uh, uh, right. I, I wasn't with it enough to correct you. So we're both blind leading blind. <laughs> However, uh, I will say uh, we need to figure out a way to share it because it, it is really helpful. And I think there's no better compliment than a sitting practitioner saying, please, can I see this? let me share this with my cabinet so we can figure out how to lead better. And that's honestly uh, what we get from your leadership in our organization. And that's what we're hoping uh, anybody listening to this podcast, clients or not, are getting uh, from listening to you in this conversation. Oh, Dustin, thanks so much. I appreciate it. I know there are many um, uh, of our trainings as well that I, that were essential to my thinking about this. Um, I, so there's also those, but I think that they are um, like the seven habits of highly effective people is my where my wellness paradigm, I think through so much of that. So if that has not been brought into um, a district or to a school, like the common uh, feedback, one of my roles as the director of research is um, to understand the impacts of our different trainings and the powerful feedback we hear about the seven habits is um, you know, it was something that was done for the staff. It was done for me as a teacher and I'm just not used to professional learning that's for me. And so I mean, that's another uh, place to go is the seven habits, um, the 4.0 training, as I'm sure what it's called. Um, and <laughs> I fail at this part and that's less, okay. less of a niner there. So it sounds more complicated. <laughs> going. Um, and there's many, do you is that what I'm uh, some of the other trainings that we <laughs> no I don't Eve this is not this podcast is for people to learn so I do appreciate and love the fact that there's anybody ever passionate about the the offerings that we have but by no means is that what this is about today I mean I love that you know I believe like you personally there's nothing out in the education space quite like a seven habits training because again it's about me as a person before it's ever about my students or my building, which was great. It's both personally and professionally, head and heart, but it's about me first. Um, and then to your point, uh, I like to get stuff done and accomplish things. Again, a hyper-competitive side for me and from in my career in education, that four disciplines of execution framework really helped me help schools that we worked with in districts accomplish their most important, wildly important goals, as you called them. Uh, and to make big change as quickly as possible because of that focus from cascading from top to bottom. And as you call it, twisting from bottom to top, we'll figure that out later. Maybe we'll go in the show notes yeah. and correct you. Yeah. Uh, show notes is a thing now, thanks to you. We'll um, make apologies to the authors who, yeah. <laughs> yes. No, but like, and, and then to your point today about equity, right? Like, uh, is there something that we have that 
get you excited in terms of equity? Uh, yes. Uh, the great uh, passion of last year for me was um, an opportunity was to work on a new training uh, called Equity in Education. And we see equity in education as ultimately a, an instructional opportunity gap. And so that is the approach that we brought to this training. So it is, um, it is primarily focused um, on helping educators in the classroom um, become aware of those behaviors that might be getting in the way of helping some students accelerate um, because you know their expectations of those students. So that might sound self-promotional, but there's many people involved in making that great, many voices and different voices involved in it. Um, also at the district level, um, I think unconscious bias is a training that we offer that is absolutely incredible and the book unconscious bias um the lead author pamela fuller she's amazing and that book is amazing like i i just i told her like my feedback was i am like proud to say that i work at the same organization as you <laughs> that was like my first bit of feedback to to her um it's so amazing what's funny is i have a, so i think we're gonna be blessed or have fortunate enough to have an opportunity with her uh, talk to her coming up and one of the things i can't wait to share with her is that i have a friend who i think is a very intelligent person but just is not that passionate about reading as i would want him to be and he read the unconscious bias book right the the leader's guide to unconscious bias and he even called me and said dude have you read this yet like, yeah of course that i we, we got free copy we got to look at it. it's great uh, he goes I don't even like to read and this book is great <laughs> like, yes. all right we win whoever this is i'm in got him to read we're yes. in this is gonna be and he's an educator and loves i mean again he's very very smart uh well researched but for whatever reason just like to dive into books and yeah. so to your point uh that book is pretty awesome and pamela mm -hmm. fuller herself is pretty amazing oh i'm so glad she's going to be on look we're already recording like the commercial for this yeah. <laughs> We'll use this as the uh, preview yeah. for that episode. Oh my goodness, it is. And at the end of each of the sections, it, or chapters even, like there's all these activities and I was just trying them out and I was like, oh my goodness, this really works. Like this is so powerful. How'd they know to do this? So, uh, I mean, it's okay, it's okay. All right, Eve, we've gone way over time, but it's because of your brilliance and also your sincere personality that makes it so easy. Thank you for taking the time out of your busy day to spend 35 minutes fixing your camera and 72 minutes talking to us. Uh, uh, all, all kidding aside, you know, I think the world of you and we are so, so fortunate to have you on our team. And I'm confident that the people listening are incredibly fortunate to now know you. So Dr. Eve, we will definitely have you back on in the future, whether you like it or not. We'll just try to spend the morning setting up the camera so that the afternoon we can jump on. But uh, Thank you, thank you, thank you for joining us. Um, thank you so much, Justin. It was a so pleasure to be here. With, with that, uh, thank you all for joining us. Again, the Change Starts Here podcast. Please go subscribe on YouTube, Apple, Spotify. Eve's like, oh God, I got to go subscribe. <laughs> please, our guests, please subscribe. You're going to be on there. So you might as well subscribe uh, and get your friends to do it as well. Thank you guys for joining us. Have a wonderful week. See you soon.